this is Sarah Zar. You are listening to This Creative Life. It is the final episode of 2020. I'm talking to my literary agent, Michael Barrett of Distal Goderich and Barrett. But before we get into this episode, I have some important announcements about what's coming up in 2021. Yes. Most importantly, I am continuing the podcast. Uh, I'm happy to say that my carpal tunnel symptoms have gotten much better after some small changes. And and I kind of thought all along I'd either stop at the end of 2020 or I would keep going and do even more. And so I have chosen to keep going and do more. Um, and there's going to be some changes, nothing too dramatic. Um, but first, a thank you. When I restarted the podcast this year, it came out of an impulse to do something in 2020 to help occupy my energy, something to stay in touch with the world, something to give my fellow writers and artists who needed and wanted, (laughs) maybe more than needed, but wanted content that wasn't news and wasn't shows about cults and wasn't shows about serial killers. I do love those, but I wanted to put something different out there. So thanks to all of you who came along with me this year and got back into it and to new listeners. Thank you so much to those who gave. It really did help. The main change is that I'm going to shut down the great Patreon experiment of 2020 and moving the whole operation over to Substack, where there is going to be the option of paid subscriptions. So that's a little different than how Patreon worked, though I want to continue with my commitment to make all the sort of classic format episodes of This Creative Life free and ad-free and available to everyone. There will be additional content for anyone who does want to go ahead and get a paid subscription. What is included in a paid subscription, you ask? Well, there's going to be a few different things going on this year. The first sort of season of subscriber content will be a a Courageous Creativity book club and discussion group. So there is no audiobook version of Courageous Creativity. The publisher I did that book with was a small publisher that does not have an audio arm. I retained the audio rights and I've been thinking about what to do with that. And I kind of wanted to do something a little out of the box, not a straight ahead audiobook. So what I'm going to do is use this subscriber substack to read the book in chunks. And as you may know, I've recorded my own audiobooks in the past. So the subscriber substack is going to be me basically doing the audiobook in chunks along with commentary and dig in a little deeper, get into what was the thinking and what were my experiences behind the different sections of the book and reframe it a little bit for a, a more adult audience. I mean, it is it is written toward younger readers, although it's great for all ages, but um, we can get into it a little differently, I think. So yeah, it's going to be like an independently produced audiobook with a lot of add-ons, and that will make up the first batch of paid subscriber-only episodes, and you'll be able to interact with those episodes on Substack. We can kind of get a little discussion going if you like, if you have questions, if you have experiences you want to share. I think that's going to be pretty cool. I'm looking forward to it. I I think it's going to be kind of great if that's something you're interested in. So the info on that is it is $7 a month or it's $48 a year. 
or if you subscribe by January 31st, it's $36 for the year. And um, that's not a mistake. I did have someone write me and say, I think the math is wrong on that Substack page because it's $7 a month, but it's only $48 a year. And I said, no, that is correct. I wanted to deeply discount um, the annual option to entice folks to subscribe, start the year strong with a good base of participants, and also uh, to keep it affordable and accessible, especially at that $36 a year rate. That's close to the lowest threshold that we had on the Patreon page. That said, if you really, really want this content and you cannot pay the $36 a year or the $7 a month, please shoot me a message and let's figure out something that works for you. When we're through the Courageous Creativity content, I have some other ideas for what I want to do after that. And another benefit of being a paid subscriber will actually be being able to interact and comment on all the episodes in a somewhat private forum. Private meaning just only other paid subscribers will be be able to join in that discussion. I was going to put the 2012 to 2015 archives on the paid subscriber feed. I'm rethinking that. I might just leave the archives open and up to everybody, especially after listening back to my first episode with my agent, Michael Barrett in 2015, thinking that there's so much of what we talked about that's still relevant, is still useful. I want to be able to keep it available to everyone. Anyway, we all know the economy is in tatters. We have no idea what's going to happen in 2021. If you can join in as a paid subscriber, that's great. If not, don't worry about it. You'll still get the episodes that you've been getting used to having and um, nothing much will change. So on that note, let's get into the conversation with Michael. Oh, nope. Edited to add one very important piece of information that I forgot to tell you, which is you can find out how to subscribe and everything else at the new home of the podcast, thiscreativelife.substack.com. Thank you. And now on to Michael. Hi, Michael. Hi, Sarah. You are the first second time guest on this creative life. I am very, very honored. (laughs) Uh, Last time you were on, it was May 2015. An entirely different world. (laughs) It's tempting to say simpler times, but as we were saying last night, there never were simpler times. Just blind, harmful nostalgia. (laughs) (laughs) yes that's exactly (laughs) what it is so uh, on that note that was episode 40 and it's still up and available in the archives for everybody and I recommend folks interested uh, checking that one out for more about how Michael got started as an agent what that path was and how he sort of moved from being an assistant to being now a partner in the agency um, I will also help you by saying it is Barrett, Michael Barrett. I know it's tempting to say Beret, and the agency is Distal, Goderich, and Barrett. And so I'm helping you pronounce all those, all those names. There's always there's always a bit of confusion. I, I think all of us, all three of us, are used to having our names mispronounced uh-huh. and are not super <laughs> precious about it. Distal seems to be the the easiest one, but it's still not like a gimme. I mean, Goderich is completely phonetic. Which surprised me the first time I, <laughs> I, I learned it. It was just, it was just too easy. <laughs> too it easy. couldn't be that easy. <laughs> um, yeah, so go check out episode 40 and you'll hear more of um, Michael's backstory. And for 
folks on this episode, why don't you just give the brief rundown on who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm Michael Barrett. I am a partner and literary agent at Distal Goddard and Barrett, uh, where I have been now for over 20 years, which is is kind of crazy. I started as an intern many, many moons ago. Um, and uh, as Sarah was saying, if you listen to the other episode, m- made my way up and, and now have been a partner for almost five years. So a little bit after our last podcast recording that happened. I represent a fairly uh, wide range of projects, uh, lots of children's books, picture books, chapter books, middle grade, YA, um, but also adult books as well. I do uh, mostly nonfiction, but also some fiction. Um, yeah, that's a, a quick rundown of who I am. Yeah, that works. Oh, I guess I guess we should say, you know, uh, full disclosure, I do represent Sarah Zar. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that seems like it should be your headline probably <laughs> every time you're a guest anywhere. It's true. It's true. That's what I usually lead with. I introduce myself and I say, I represent Sarah Zar. And I'm like, oh, and my name is Michael Barrett, Period. by the way. Yeah. Um, let's just jump into like kind of a 2020 year in review in publishing, which I did not like tell you ahead of time we were going to do this, but um, like, what did we see happen this year through all the pandemic stuff for better or worse? I have questions about things like BEA. Do you think that's permanently canceled? What is the future of trade shows in general? What did you see Mm. happening and not happening in this pandemic year one? Let's call it because we don't Clearly, we're yeah. trickling into 2021, so there's going to be a pandemic year too as we like transition through the vaccine and all that. But um, yeah, what did you see happen, good and bad? Did you see any changes this year that you think should stick and were good things? Like, give me all your thoughts about 2020 and publishing. Uh, th- this could be like an eight-hour-long conversation. <laughs> um, I, 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 there, there is so much to dive into. It's been a really interesting year for publishing in that, you know, when when everything started getting shut down in March, there was a, a fairly large panic in publishing that um, things were going to get really, really bad, um, that book sales were going to fall off a cliff, uh, and that there were going to be mass layoffs that, you know, everything was going to change. And I know that this happened in a lot of different industries too. And, and, you know, what we found of course, is that uh, different industries are affected differently and that the pain is not evenly distributed at all. Uh, As usual, those who have, have more and those who don't have, have less. Um, What was interesting is, you know, there were some layoffs right at the beginning uh, of, of the lockdowns and there was, I think sort of an overreaction to what was happening without trying to see what, you know, how things actually were going to play out. And the way that they played out is that book sales were up this year, generally. Um, There were certainly some bad weeks and some shifts in what categories were selling particularly well or or not well. Um, But overall, unit book sales are very good for 2020. Unfortunately, what we're seeing, though, is that where those sales are happening has shifted to be even more online than it was before. Sales have been shifting to Amazon for years. And during the pandemic, what we saw happen is that 
as uh, in-person shopping was closed down and online shopping was the only option, um, a lot of the sales moved to Amazon, but also to other online retailers like Walmart and Target. Now, part of the reason that we saw a lot of sales at Walmart and Target is that those were stores that were still open and people could still go and shop in person there. So book sales skyrocketed in those places. I mean, Target and Walmart are going to have a much larger share of sales for this year than they have in years previous. Um, four books, but of course, that, were, four books <clears throat> that are carried in store, or did that also apply to the ones both that those on, retailers have available online? Both online and in store, um, because people were ordering things from Target and Walmart generally that they would have gone to buy in person. So they were going online and they were purchasing, you know, whatever toilet paper, uh, and then also the books that they wanted. What that necessarily means, of course, though, is that if print unit sales are up a little bit, I'm not going to say they're up, you know, dramatically, but, you know, a couple percentage points, um, and you know, we're seeing huge shifts to sales online. The thing that that means is that independent bookstores are the ones who are getting squeezed. You know, it's also happening at Barnes & Noble because they have such a bad online game. Um, but they're a large, you know, a large player and I think are able to absorb some of those things as they make changes in their stores. I mean, that's changes at Barnes & Noble or a whole, whole other eight-hour podcast. Um, but I, I, independent bookstores are really hurting. What, what role, uh, like, what do you make of bookshop.org? And is that an overall good for independent booksellers or is it... I'm not trying to like get bookshop mad. I'm just curious because I always put bookshop links and I have like bookshop stores because I perceived that it was a good thing because there can be times when I'm giving people links to like my local independent bookseller or saying, go to your local independent bookseller. And they're, they're not going to do that, but they will go right. to bookshop. And that seems at least in some way better than going to Amazon. Absolutely. And, and their sales were up <laughs> like 800% or whatever it was. I mean, ridiculous numbers um, as the, the pandemic happened. It's been great and it's been a wonderful resource and it's certainly a, a much better option than, than shopping at Amazon, uh, at least for books. Good. Other observations about this year? Um, you know, one of the things that's happened that I found really depressing is publishers once again have used, um, you know, what's what's the line about there? There's no um, there's no I in team. <laughs> no, no, there's no um, there's no crying in baseball. Also that uh, <laughs> no, the one about no disaster uh, going unexploited. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, publishers certainly have. You know, pu many publishers have changed their payout structure. Um, when I started working in publishing, publishers basically paid advances on signing and on acceptance, unless the deal was like a very large deal. And by very large deal, I mean like well into the six figures. Um, now every advance is like chopped up into, you know, at least four different payments. Um, and I find it really offensive. And publishers are still raking in the money um, mm -hmm. and doing very well. And, and, to publishers' credit, they've raised base salaries for uh, assistants and, and people just starting out. And that's great and really good to see. And I think will will help our industry tremendously. At the same time, they're punishing authors unnecessarily. They are not having the sorts of cash flow issues that they thought they were going to have. So chopping up payments into many different parts, I, I think, is a really dick move, to, to put it bluntly. <laughs> I remember uh, this... Right when the lockdown started, I had a contract in process and 
I was, we were waiting for final signed contracts and the payment that comes with that. And I, some anxious part of my brain had convinced myself that they were just going to be like, we're suspending all contracts. Everything in process is being frozen. You're not going to get the contract executed. You're not going to get the signing payment. And um, you were reassuring and you were right because it did... (laughs) did ultimately happen but were you secretly also worried that could happen (laughs) i i was always and and i honestly continue to be so my worry in publishing is always like down the line not sort of in the moment because that everything takes a while to play out and publishing is such a long game that it's like the the future is always sort of the worry um i wasn't really worried in the moment i will say a lot of authors were you are not the only one uh you know for a month that was basically all of the questions i was answering was like you know is publishing like these, shutting down tomorrow and as like my contract can be canceled like, hey just checking in <laughs> yep yep um and and that's fine that's what my job is so i'm i'm happy to do it but no i wasn't really that worried about it but i will say i mean publishers were at the beginning asking to like delay payments or, or stretch payments out. I, I mean, they were really, really concerned mm-hmm. um, and had good reason to be because no one knew what the impact was going to be. No one knew how these things were going to play out. No one knew what consumers were going to be doing. No one knew if the economy was going to fall off the cliff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, books are a luxury. So mm-hmm. luxuries are usually the first thing to go when the economy turns. But is it you know, as things have played out, what has happened is the the class of people who typically buy books, people with money, continue to have money and continue to have jobs. So they continued buying books. And in some ways, they started buying more books because they were trying to entertain children at home or their, themselves at home or in ways that like they didn't have to do before. Out of that altruistic NPR listening personality of like, I have to help bookstores by buying books. And that that desire to see your favorite business pull through and maybe one of those yeah. favorite businesses is books. Absolutely. Let's talk about trade shows for a sec. So BEA, what do you think the future is of BEA? Which is, for those who don't know, that is Book Expo America. It's the big publishing trade show that happens in New York once a year. And it's huge. Too, it's too big. It's very unwieldy. Uh, people have been complaining about it for a while. Do you think it's going to come back? Forever. People have been complaining about it since I started 20 years ago. Um, and Sarah, they dropped the America from the name a few years ago. Oh, They're just I'm Book sorry. Expo. Book Expo. It's an international event. Um, that sorry for my very few international. Yeah. <laughs> but there are very few international people attend. Look, it was time for a Book Expo to change. Uh, Book Expo started as a sales show um, where when when the market was a lot of independent booksellers, when that was like the, the sort of dominant force in the industry, people from those bookstores would come to Book Expo and literally place their orders for the false books. Um, that's where you decided what you were taking. They would take meetings with salespeople. The salespeople would pitch them books and they would decide how many copies they were taking. And that was the purpose of it. And that's where it started. And obviously that's been shifting over time, you know, as Barnes & Noble became the dominant force in the industry um, in the 90s and independent bookstores closed, you know, in huge numbers. That stopped being the most important thing. Um, and then as, you know, sales moved online and as as our business 
modernized and as as you know the contact between stores and salespeople became more regular and and you know electronic communication made things simpler and easier that became less and less of the focus and the question kept like over the years was always okay so what is the purpose of book expo what is this for and it's you know it's nice to have a big industry trade show um it's it's a way for publishers to publicize their books it is a way for booksellers to have contact with authors to have contact with people from publishing houses but it had stopped being what it was and and it really was a question of every every year of like why are we doing this what is this really for and there was a shift towards more educational programming which is great and there needs to be more of for booksellers um so that they have reason to attend so that they're getting something out of it because it costs a lot of money mm-hmm. um you know it's a lot of money to go to book expo it's not so much the the cost of attending um you know the actual show itself but the cost of getting there, cost of staying there you know it's held in, in expensive cities yeah if you're not already um, in new york it's a journey yeah or i mean we went back to rotating shows i think so you know in other cities too but you know how much cheaper is chicago than new york i don't know the question now, you know, now that they've, they've said they're not having Book Expo or Book Con this year and that, you know, they've, they've sort of permanently retired those is what's going to replace it? Because Reed will replace it with something. Um, and what I think Reed? there's uh, the company that owns Book Expo, Reed Exhibitions. Gotcha. They're one of those companies that owns lots of different trade shows. And this is one of them. I never, like, I know I have heard that name and I had a vague understanding, but I didn't really understand until just this moment that people own trade shows. Yes. <laughs> Continue. It's business. It's a whole business. Um, so yeah. now I thought it was just like all the publishers being like, let's put on a show. Well, no. So yeah, it's not, uh, they bought it from the ABA when, when it stopped oh. being a, a sales thing. Yeah. There's a whole history of, of Book Expo. It's sort of interesting. Um, I, Publishers Weekly, which is not always my favorite publication, but Publishers Weekly did a really great, um, not even very, it's not even a long piece, pretty short piece about like the history of Book Expo um, and people's remembrances. And it was quite good. So I recommend reading that. So I, the question is, what what is the future of it? You know, is it is it a consumer show uh, like BookCon had been? Is it some sort of combination of consumer show and trade show? Which, God forbid, I really hope not. Um, those two things are are not to be mixed. <laughs> um, I think Comic Con is that seems like the is, direction it was kind of heading, and it oh, yeah, it's I, miserable. I, it seems like <laughs> you'd want to keep those things because because the fandoms are great and we're not knocking fandoms i mean they're no they're amazing they're amazing and they keep a lot of artists alive and working um but when it mixes with the business piece of it it just it doesn't seem like a good fit no they don't go together i mean they're not they're, they don't have the same purpose people are not working to the same ends and it, it just makes things very confused i think when they're pushed together so i i do hope that they remain separate things I, you know a lot of people are looking to winter institute which is the um american bookseller association's um uh, winter conference where there's really great programming for booksellers where they learn a lot about the the books that are coming out 
in in the spring where they get to meet with authors who have come in for presentations. Um, and I think everyone finds that to be such a useful event that people are looking to that as maybe a model for what um, a summer conference could be, but maybe on just a, a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. It's just hard. There are so many different constituencies who are going to Book Expo who want whatever replaces it to work for them. And I'm not sure how that's actually possible. I don't know how you please booksellers and librarians and bloggers who I I think were the largest attendees of the last several uh, book expos from, you know, what I could tell at least. Um, I I don't know how you make a show that's for all of those people and satisfies all of them and and makes it worth their while for paying the money to attend, um, while at the same time making it worthwhile for publishers to spend the exhibiting money. Mm -hmm. That is what keeps these shows afloat. The reason that Book Expos had so many issues is that all of the publishers were not seeing a benefit from these shows and had pulled back their investment and participation. Mm -hmm. If the publishers aren't aren't footing the bill, there's not going to be a show. When I started going to, to Book Expo, I think my first Book Expo was 2001, if I'm not mistaken. Um... It was at the Javits Center in New York, mm-hmm. and it took up both floors of the Javits Center. The entire thing was Book Expo. By the last Book Expo I went to, um, I didn't go last year, so it was the year before. Um, it was part of one floor of the Javits Center. Oh, wow. Not even the I th- whole thing. I think the last time I went, and the only time I went, was 2009, and it was massive. And I got the swine flu. And, <laughs> and that whole, I mean, just the whole thing was a lot. Speed dating with children's authors, which yes. is a bit of a nightmare, although it's, a, it's great to be asked. It's one of those things, there's a lot of things in a, in a writing career that are like this, where it's like, you don't like to do the thing, but you are hurt and worried when you don't get invited <laughs> to do the thing. So if you get invited to do the thing, you're like, great, I'll do it. And then you go, you're like, this is a living nightmare. Um, I mean, this is life generally, right? Like you want to be invited to the party, but do you actually want to go? But yeah, hey, backing up, let's talk about that um, pending potential acquisition of Simon & Schuster by Penguin Random. So, I, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, when we spoke in 2015, Penguin and Random House were separate companies and yep. um, were in the, I think, in the process um, of, of that merger. Um, you know, we went from the big six to the big five, and now it it looks like, barring some sort of intervention from the government, um, that Penguin Random House will be acquiring Simon & Schuster, uh, which will make them by far the largest trade publisher in the U.S. What about internationally? I know that there are much bigger conglomerates. Conglomerates? <laughs> there's, no, there's no N in that. <laughs> conglomerates. Conglomerates. But where, does, where would Penguin Random Simon... So Simon and Schuster is does not have the same global footprint as um, a HarperCollins or a Penguin Random House. So I, I don't think it changes the balance that much, except for the fact that the U.S. is the largest book market in the world. So whenever you change something in the U.S., you're changing the balance and and the whole of the world. I, I don't know that it, it changes the international game that mm-hmm. much. Um, 
but look, consolidation is bad for everybody. I, I don't care what <laughs> what people say. Um, it's nice for Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster's shareholders mm-hmm. because they can extract more value from the company um, to pay those shareholders. But it doesn't benefit employees, many of whom will be laid off in this process because there will be redundancies. It doesn't benefit authors because now there are fewer places to sell your book. I, I do believe you know, Bertelsmann, when they say that they plan on running Simon & Schuster as its own separate company, you know, I don't think it would be folded into Penguin or Random House, you know, immediately. I don't think those imprints will be absorbed into other imprints, but imprints will be closed down. People will be laid off. Uh, There will be less places for authors to sell books. It means that less people will likely be published. It means that less voices will be published. It means that the diversity of voices being published will be fewer. It is further corporatization of the publishing industry. Very hard to find any good news in this. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I don't think it'll be good for consumers because having less competition is not generally good for consumers. Um, Not just in the diversity of voices, but prices and everything else. The only, the sort of the only positive thing that we can see in this is the same positive thing that happens when Penguin and Random House merge, which is having large publishing conglomerates helps to stand up to Amazon because now we have one huge behemoth bookseller, which dominates everything, which is even more that dominant than Barnes & Noble when everyone hated Barnes & Noble. Now we all love Barnes & Noble because they're not Amazon. But, you know, it, it's a counterbalance to Amazon. You know, the negotiations that Amazon has with publishers, you know, I don't know if everyone remembers this, but there was a time where they got into a fight with Simon & Schuster. They couldn't come mm-hmm. to terms and they they took all of Simon & Schuster's books off I of sale. I do remember that, yeah. And they could do that. You know, they have the power to do it. And also Simon & Schuster was small enough one, they were just in a terrible position. They were losing all of these sales. Amazon was fine with not having those books because they had plenty of other books on offer. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't do that to Penguin Random House. Right. You know, the, Penguin Random House has too much of the market share. So that's sort of the only positive thing. But I, I don't think that's a positive thing in the end. I think that's bad that we've let Amazon get to the point where there's such a monopoly that we have to worry about such things. Right. What, the solution is not to allow another monopoly somewhere in the chain to balance it out. Um, the solution right. is to fix Amazon as monopoly. But instead of fixing Amazon as monopoly, the Justice Department decided to sue publishers for you know fixing ebook prices. Yeah, I mean, I you know that's again that's a whole nother eight hour podcast. I have too much to say about too many subjects. Yeah, I mean, I remember when the news of the acquisition of the pending acquisition of Simon and Schuster came out. I remember emailing you and being like, "Is the future just like?" one giant traditional publisher publisher versus Amazon. And it can feel that way. And like, like you said, like, that's not a good thing. No, it might feel like a necessary thing. But there's other ways, especially if we had a time machine to not be in the place that we're in now. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I, I actually do wonder when I think about the 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 ebook, um, the whole ebook case and and what happened. I do wonder if the Obama Justice Department, have they known sort of how things were going to play out with Amazon and how people were going to feel about the tech companies at this point, if they would have been so willing to pursue that case mm-hmm. against Apple and the publishers um, who, I, it, it's just, it's always interesting when you have um, several companies being accused of collusion against an enormous monopoly, um, which has its own issues. 
there should be no company the size of Amazon. Um, no. Um, hey, let's move on to more publishing reckonings. <laughs> um, so yeah, publishing has been dealing with reckonings on a few fronts in the last decade. Um, a lot centering on racial diversity and a pretty damning history of the lack of diversity, not just lack of, but like the hostility toward diversity in publishing. Um, and of course, you and I have been and are, you know, the beneficiary beneficiaries of that also as white people. Uh, there's gender bias, of course, but there's like a little sexual harassment thrown in. Despite the lip service publishers pay to making changes around this stuff, uh, I don't know. And the reactions, I guess, when a specific scandal like comes up and then there's a reaction of like, we'll do better. Do you, do you see anything really changing in the background yet in the way it needs to for equity to happen down the line? Like, or does it just feel like reaction and public relations? That is a really large and difficult <laughs> question. Um, and, and a complex one. And, and I'll preface your answer by saying Michael does not speak for everyone for all agents or for all publishing, there's there's a real variety of takes and absolutely. And I only speak for my, I don't this. speak. For, I don't even speak for my company on this. I yeah. speak for myself. Yep. Um, look, I, I don't think that personally. I don't think that under capitalism that <laughs> these problems can be solved. Yeah. So I'll start with that. Um, I don't think that there is a way to fix the issues um, that we have within a corporate structure. So. When I it's don't all about think like that, shareholder. Yeah. I mean, these companies have profit. to make money and that's, they, they will make the change. They will follow the money. Mm -hmm. They will always follow the money and you know, they will do things to protect themselves from criticism. Um, and I, I think that's where most of their decisions come from. That mm -hmm. said, as I mentioned earlier, all or at least most of the major publishers, um, I think HarperCollins is the exception at this point, have raised their entry-level salaries. Mm -hmm. This is great. I actually think this will it's help a, to change things in publishing. Because for people who don't know how it works, like a lot of these entry-level jobs in publishing don't pay enough for people to live in New York where the jobs are. And so the people who tend to be able to take those jobs tend to already come from a background that has been supported by parents or by generational wealth. Um, they might have their parents helping pay their rent or paying all their rent. They don't have student loans, maybe. It's a whole spectrum of stuff that, that feeds into this thing of a, a particular kind of person ending up with the entry-level jobs that get you to the higher jobs. That's exactly right. And I think that's, the, you know, one of the big reasons for not having greater diversity in publishing is certainly that 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 is like the baseline. I think fixing that was really the first step. I, I think, you know, there have been lots of diversity inclusion initiatives. Everyone has those things going on. You know, I think corporate diversity inclusion initiatives are pretty much bullshit. But hey, I, I do think that people are often good natured and trying. I just think that, that they aren't great solutions. However, changing pay is a really good solution. And I think that has come out of a lot of the diversity and inclusion conversations going on within these companies. So maybe it can have some, some real change. Um, because I know that's what a lot of employees have been saying for years is, mm -hmm. hey, if you paid people more money, we could get in a more diverse 
you know, crop of, of people willing, willing to do these jobs. So I think that's the first step, I, you know, in, in doing that, I think they do open the doors a little bit to, to people who may not have been able to take these jobs previously. The next so? step is then retaining those people, which is where publishers have actually had the hardest mm. time, I think. And that's because, you know, these are very white dominated spaces. Um, I know that I have heard um, certainly stories uh, of, of, I mean, pretty horrifically racist things said mm -hmm. <laughs> in, in, in meetings. I still remember very early on in my career having uh, submitting a book by a black author and having an editor this was on the adult side not the children's side say to me black people don't buy books and this was a time oh boy yeah no and and this was a time that you know it was sort of the height of the like black romance and erotica trend. I don't know if everyone remembers this, but it was huge. I mean, there were huge authors who had become enormous by selling books out of the back of their cars mm -hmm. because they couldn't get publishers to publish their books, despite the fact that there were these audiences who desperately wanted them. Mm -hmm. So not only was it just offensive and racist, but it was wrong. Mm -hmm. It was like demonstrably wrong, but that's what, you know, this is so much of what we were up against. And, and this is, you know, white liberal New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so pause, a pause to reflect. Yeah. You know, like these, these are the, the, these are the supposedly, you know, quote unquote, woke people of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that is what people are up against when they come into these offices. So, you know, retaining people and promoting right. people and having people, you know, at all levels who are uh, uh, people of different marginalized backgrounds at all levels of publishing is what's really going to change things. Mm -hmm. um, it, but yeah, if, they're, if they're, if there's a hostile work environment, for it's that. hard to retain people. Yeah. Why would, Why would you stay? stay around for that? Yeah. Okay. I have a bunch of sort of random questions in no particular order that have okay. come over the transom. So someone wrote in to ask, we talked about this a little bit, but we can get more specific. Um, someone said, how is publishing in 2021 different from when I, me, Sarah, so I started in like 2005, 2006. How's it different now? from the mid-aughts, let's say, and what advice do you have for writers who are trying to break through now? How long have we been working together? Oh, man. When I was back listening to our 2015 episode last night, we were like, we're so old. We've known each other so long. It's like, just wait till 2020. Yeah, 15 years. It has been 50, 15 no. years in January, right? Or yeah. was it 15 years this past January? I think it was 16 years this coming oh. January. Wow. <laughs> Our, our, our relationship can, you know, drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, I'm very curious what for you, I mean, it's an entirely different world. I like what, what's your take on that? Um, well, first of all, let's acknowledge for me, I'm specifically talking about young adult publishing because that's what I know. And that's what I do. I know some stuff about publishing in general, but my experience, my personal experience and my world is young adult. And let's see, the advent of the importance of social media is, well, the when I say importance, I say that with a grain of salt. And if you go back and listen to episode 40, you can hear us talk a little more about that and about platforms and how important they are or are not. But I think what I'm talking about is the influence of um, when YA Twitter takes up a cause, it, publishers have had to react. 
um, or they've chosen. I don't know. I don't want to get too ah. <laughs> deep into it because I'm just sort of like on the fence about the pros and cons of all that. But um, I actually do have something. Can I jump in just for a second yes. to say yeah, yeah. to say something? So I actually want to be really clear about it because this comes back to the the conversation that we were having earlier. Um, when those things happen, when when books have been supposedly canceled or pulled or delayed, all of those things, in every single instance of that happening, I, from my knowledge, it has always been the author who has decided to do that, not the publisher. Mm. Okay, good point. Publishers generally would like to proceed with publication as planned, not change anything and not not acknowledge anything, not say anything. Publishers are happy to just proceed forward. It is usually the authors who feel pressure to do something and then ask their publisher to make changes. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the YA Twitter campaigns actually have very little effect on publishers. Publishers do not care. I think the that's people important. who care are authors. And I think that's important to, to point out. We talked about this a little bit in 2015. Um, and this is not this is not a commentary on the issues that the YA Twitter is taking up. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking no. about it as a phenomenon. Is just to remember that it's still an echo chamber effect. And a lot of writers I know who are afraid of what YA Twitter is going to say about something, I try to remind them. And again, <laughs> I just want to be clear on this. I'm not saying why Twitter is always wrong or always right. I think there's a real range of stuff that's gone on. And, and a lot of times these are important conversations to have. But the fear people have, I want to remind them, for better or worse, that the general reading public has no idea what's going on on Twitter. Um, we look, well, let's, look, let's go outside way and look at what happened with American Dirt last year. Um, it, within, it was a huge, enormous bestseller. With, <laughs> That one. <laughs> Within Twitter, it felt like this is just like an ex a huge takedown. This is going to have a big impact. We're really getting people thinking. We're really getting people talking about representation and who should tell what stories and acting in bad faith, acting in good faith, all these different things that, that were going on in that conversation. And, um, you know, for the general reading public, it still went on to be a massive hit, big bestseller a book club favorite. So again, <laughs> I really, I'm, I'm like really going on my way to it. This is not a value judgment on the conversations or the ideas. And I'm not saying, don't worry, write anything you want and it could still be a bestseller. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that um, some newer authors kind of get frozen in fear. They end up not writing. They're just worried about what um, like 200 people on Twitter are going to say if they try and write this one sentence and it's not necessarily something that that particular thing is something to fear. No. And I mean, if you look at something like American dirt, it's one of the few times that something that a, a conversation that started on Twitter became something much larger. Um, it went really mainstream. Know, very. I mean, that was written up in basically every publication. There was tons of talk about it. Um, and, and it did do, nothing did to think that sold more books in some ways uh, I don't for some know. people? 
Look, I, I'm not sure because that was a book that had such a huge push. It was an Oprah book club pick. And, you know, that had so much momentum behind it that it was going to, there was no way that book was not going to be a huge bestseller. Um, it had every box ticked and, and it was totally lined up. So would it have done not as well? I'm not sure. Um, but I do think like, that was a case of, you know, all publicity is good publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just kept the book and the conversation longer. And people, you know, a lot of times are like, hey, I want to read it and find out for myself, or they don't care, or they only saw the positive coverage. You know, it, it's even, even, it's funny, even the American Dirt thing, which got a ton of pickup in other sorts of press. Um, I, I remember talking to a colleague who like asked their friends if they knew anything about the controversy and they knew nothing of the controversy, but had heard of the book. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's hard to say. Um, to your point, I do think that, you know, I, yeah, Twitter is very much a, an echo chamber and I think people hear the voices, they hear the same, the same things over and over and over again. So it tends to feel very extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, it tends to feel like the only thing anyone is talking about. Um, but you know, when you ask your friend or a spouse about it, they've not heard of it. Um, so clearly not everyone's talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, before my partner decided to become a writer and get involved in this world himself, I, I really liked being able to like use him as a good check of like, is this thing real or is it, not? Is it like fil- filtering tell. out? Yeah. 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 Like, is this like, is this a thing? Uh, and Sadly, that's been lost, but now now I have friends to ask. I mean, getting back to the question, some of the changes since the mid-aughts. So social media is one of them. And, and, And I think we still would go back to what we said in 2015, which is if you don't like doing those things, don't do them. And then I, I guess uh, advice for writers who are trying to break through now, it's not that different. I think it always boils down to write the best book you possibly can. Um, get people, you know, try and find, try and get feedback before you're like sending out to agents and stuff, try and whether that's a writer's group or critique partner or something like that, where you are not, there's someone to help you see like what some of the issues might be in a story, just so that you can write the best book that you can. And that's what you're putting forward when you're looking for an agent. I don't think that advice will ever change. Yeah, I would say, you know, one of the big changes um, from when I started working in this, or even when you and I started working together, is just how much more transparent this business is, and how how much more information is available Mm -hmm. to writers who are starting out. It's like easily available at your fingertips. If you are in the economic position to be writing a book, meaning you probably have a computer or, you know, some sort of internet connected device that you were writing on, um, you have access to so much free information about how to get published that, you know, in 2000 was a lot harder to come by. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of that stuff was behind the paywalls of some sort, whether it was going to the store and buying a book on uh, literary agents or, you know, some sort of something online that you had to pay for or going to a writer's conference in person and paying a lot of money to do it. You know, a lot of that stuff is now available for free. Um, And, you know, certainly social media is one of those places where you can go and find out a lot of information. Now, it's not always the (laughs) highest quality of information and it's not always accurate. Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, check your sources and make sure that you're, you're, you know, following reputable people. 
and even reputable people can be wrong sometimes. Um, it's true. Myself included, even we can me, all be wrong. Even me. I mean, it's unlikely that you or I are going to be wrong, but it does happen. It, it has, it has happened. <laughs> it has happened. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, that availability of information is, is a, a good equalizer. And it, I think it actually is very, very helpful. And it's a positive change. I would say that's a net positive change. Yeah. How about this? This is something you and I have seen happen a lot. And it's often just a natural part of a longer writing career, but changing agents mid-career or if you're like me, like pre-career. <laughs> I did have an agent before you. We never sold anything together, but it was still felt like a big traumatic thing to me to have to like look for a new agent after several years with an agent and feel like I was starting all over. Um, but then there's the changing agents mid-career when you are a published, established writer, but something about the relationship with the agent isn't working anymore. And then other mid-career changes like kind of rebranding, pivoting to a different genre or a different category, just whatever it is. Established writers dealing with some of those bigger changes that come along in any career that goes for a while, like specifically on the agent front, what are your thoughts about when it's right to like change agents? It's hard to know. And I mean, it's a, it's a big decision, obviously, and one that I think causes a lot of consternation for people because People often think like, oh, I can't leave my agent because then I'll never find another one. Um, I don't think for most published authors that that should be a huge concern. I, I think sometimes people make the changing agent decision for the wrong reasons. I think people make that change when things aren't going well in their careers, which isn't necessarily the right, the right time to be doing it. But I think everyone has to make that decision for themselves. It's such a an odd relationship, as you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it it's a business relationship that's also deeply personal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is somebody who really, when it comes down to it, you know, the the only legal obligation that uh, uh, agents have to authors is paying them, right? So there's this very tied together financial relationship. But then it's also creative mm -hmm. and um, emotional. And, you know, it, it's this person who's on your side. You know, this isn't your right. editor the, who's working for the publishing house. This is somebody who works for you. It's somebody you employ um, to go do work on your behalf. Most likely to kind of see you at your worst and at your lowest. Oh, yes. When you're like struggling with a project or feeling frustrated or feeling confused or disappointed, whatever it is, like the agent is there for all that. And so that's how it becomes so personal in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I mean, people compare it to, you know, uh, romantic relationships and marriage, which I, generally I find gross and disturbing. But um, <laughs> at the same time, I think <laughs> at the same time, I think a lot of times they are longstanding relationships that are, are you know, sometimes a little bit fraught and complicated and it can be really difficult just like ending a romantic relationship to know when the right time is. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say people just have to do it when they think it's right for them. I mean, I, I'm not always going to agree with every, you know, author making a change in their agent relationship, whether my author or someone else's, <laughs> um, you know, whether they're leaving me or coming to me, um, I may not think they're making the right decision, but that's not my call. Right. Um, that's up to them. Um, yeah. And and I think it is a very personal sort of 
thing where you have to look at that relationship and say, is it working for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and working means different things to different people. Different people need different things from mm-hmm. their agents. You know, some people really just need somebody who's like doing contracts and making deals and that's yep. it. And like, they really don't even care, you know, if, if their agent is reading their work. Some people really want that sort of close you know, editorial relationship with an agent. Some people, you know, want someone that they can text at midnight to like hear that they're a good person. It starts to become more clear what it is that you need out of the relationship. It's tough when you're, you know, a new author and you've never had an agent before Mm -hmm. and you've never had a book published before to know what it is that you need. And I think a lot of times the reason that people wind up changing agents is that once they get into the process and once they've been doing it for a while, what maybe they thought they needed, you know, when when you're having that first call with the agent and you're going through your, your checklist of questions and it's like, how do you like to communicate? And are, do you consider yourself editorial? I, I like can give you every agent like conversation is the same because everyone's using the same checklist of questions mm-hmm. that they got on the internet. Um, what you think you need in that first call, like what's important to you then is not necessarily the thing five years in mm-hmm. that you realize, you, you realize is the thing that is actually important to you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good insight. And that is a, common reason for changing is just yeah just and that is a good analogy to long-term relationships because you're just like you know yes what I'm really looking for in a partner whether it's a business partner or a spousal partner a life partner is different from what I was looking for when I was 22 or whatever well Um, I I think this is what's interesting about relationships generally right is that you know we we want them to be all things all the time and that's not really how things work so like why why would you expect those things to to be the same. And, you know, what I would say is there is nothing wrong with changing agents. Um, I think, you know, I know authors worry about changing agents because they don't want to get a reputation um, and they don't want to get a reputation for being difficult and they don't want to get a reputation for changing agents. And I think that is something that is well worth considering. And and I, I understand why authors are thinking about it. At the same time, you have to do what's right for you. and. Um, I think especially for for women and femme presenting people, it is difficult to do these things because you know what people are going to say about you and you know the kinds of reputations that people have. Mm-hmm. And you know that as uh, somebody who presents as a woman, if you are asking for things that people are going to find you difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? Just be difficult. It's okay to be difficult. That's um, what difficult look, people that's what get places. In, in an agent is for you to be difficult for me. Oh, I have no problem being difficult. <laughs> <laughs> that is my one of my favorite things about you in the business sense. Um, contained in that question too, I want to talk a little bit about rebranding mid-career, pivoting to other focuses. It, just thoughts on that when you're established in one thing and either that's petering out for you career-wise or you're just not interested anymore and your interest has shifted to something else. How do you mm. pull that off? This is going to sound really like much more simple than it actually is, but just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 
Look, you know, I, I'm a different person than I was when I started this career many years ago. And my different person than you were when I met you. And again, going back to the analogy of life partnerships, like when people change and people do change, like, are you on board with those changes or did you want them to stay the same? (laughs) And if so, do you need to go find someone who's more like the original version of the person? That you know, absolutely. I feel like what absolutely. Has for us is like we both changed and grown, and we're both so far on board, you know. Absolutely. But, but someday that might not be the case. Who knows? But that's true with like and me, that's and my, okay. me and my husband. And we both changed yeah. a lot, but we're both like fine with the changes so far. So, Sarah, this is why you and I get along so well. <laughs> I, you know, I when when my partner and I got together, and when we decided that we wanted to like be together for a long period of time that like this was something that we wanted to do one like the agreement we made was that we would stay together as long as it was working for both of us mm-hmm. like that that was it there, there was no till death do us part because that's you know that's not a commitment that i don't think <laughs> really anyone can make personally um you you have to work at things and you have to have sort of an agreement that you want to work at things but at the same time there may come a point where things just aren't working anymore um and i I think that's true of every relationship and i think being honest with yourself about it is the most important part and i feel really lucky that you know in my my personal life my partnership like we've grown together in ways where we continue to work really well and I felt that way with, with clients too, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have been with a lot of clients for a very long time and seen their careers grow and change and shift and morph. And I've seen their, their interests, what it is that they want to be working on change. I've seen the market change. I've seen people adapt to those changes. I've seen people, you know, decide that they want to do something entirely different. Um, I've, I've had people who've decided they didn't want to write anymore mm-hmm. or didn't want to write for publication. And I'm happy to go on those journeys with people. Um, And I think that's the exciting part of it. Um, You know, what I was going to say is when I started out, I probably would have had very different feelings about rebrandings and changing and doing something different. And, you know, where I think I am in my life and looking at the publishing landscape and, and where things are and how difficult things are and how you can write the same book four times and get four different results you know, my inclination is to follow people creatively and to help them do what it is that they want to do. So if somebody has written a YA novel and then wants to write a, you know, adult memoir, look, if that's the thing that they need to do to be happy and fulfilled creatively, let's try to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Would it be easier to sell another YA book on the back of a YA book? Yes. Does that mean it's the right thing to do? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think people need to, I think one of the tough things about being a writer is that you have to be, and I, I, I've said this to people before, like you, you have to be delusional enough to believe that people are going to want to read what you write, but then you have to be realistic enough to like listen to good advice. Yeah, and, and accept that your choices have consequences. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Like, you, like, so that's what I say to people, like, you can do that and you should do it if that's what is your, where your energy is right now. That doesn't yep. mean everyone's going to like it, but. <laughs> no, and that doesn't even necessarily mean I can sell it. And that's yeah. the conversation that I have with people, which is tell me what it is what you, that you want to do. And I will tell you what I think I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's have those conversations. So you really want to, you know, write a cookbook. Well, you know what? Great. That's where your creative energy is. I don't think I can sell it. 
Um, maybe I can try, but I, I don't think I can sell it. Oh, you don't think you can sell it? Then maybe I should do something else, you know? And, and that's the, I think that's a kind of dialogue that people need to be able to have with their agents to have a productive relationship. Um, and different agents are going to feel differently. I mean, the, mm-hmm. again, this is the sort of thing that, you know, I don't even think you can really figure out at the beginning. Um, you know, some agents will be like, no, you have to write YA. Like that's what you're writing. That's what you you need to write that. I mean, speaking of the chain, the chain, your own personal changes and what you would have said 15 years ago versus what you say now, we actually had a conversation because I remember I was still at my job that I had um, when we signed. So it was probably 2005 or 2006. (laughs) And I was sitting at my desk there and I was just asking like, what if this, what if that? And you were like, the advice I usually give people is write four books in. Yeah the category that you're trying to get yeah. established in before you do anything different, which is yeah. probably still solid advice. It's good advice. <laughs> but, it, but you also will say like, look, you got to write what you need to write and then we'll figure out <laughs> what and if yeah. we can do anything with it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think as a young person, I was probably a lot more self-assured and um, felt like I knew what I was talking about and could tell people what to do that is in a way that I would not know. Youth. Yeah, it is. I <laughs> the mean, older I, you I would get, never, the more you're like, I don't know anything. I, I really, I feel that way. You know, um, I feel like I don't, I feel like I have a lot of experience and I have a lot to offer. And I think I can be a really great agent for people and helping to guide them and help them to get where it is that they want to go. Um, and I think part of that is just having the humility to say that, like, I don't know what's going to happen and mm-hmm. I don't have control of a lot of things. Like, I, I think you and I've had this conversation more than oh, once so, about yeah. the fact that like, you know, in a, in a publishing career, you have control of maybe like, I'm going to be really generous and say 20% of what happens. Mm-hmm. And then 80% is just not in your control. Um, so let's do what we can about that 20% that we can control and try to let go of the 80% mm-hmm. that we can't. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is hard for us control freaks. It's horrible. Like, and, you know, <laughs> this is like your livelihood and the thing that you're doing. And there's so much that you, you know, it doesn't matter. Like there are things that we can't, we cannot make people buy books. We can suggest it to them, but we can't make yeah. them. Um, and that's, it's a, it's a tough thing. <laughs> okay. This question is anonymous, but it comes from a working writer um, who's been around for a while. It's a question a lot of us could ask. And I, I swear this is not me. This might going to be sound mm-hmm. like, sure. Might going to be sound like me. I, it's not me. Um, basically, how much do you think sales numbers affect acquisitions for editors taking on a new to them? author. So like if an author who has been around for like a decade or so with multiple books, but the last few haven't sold as well, I swear I did not write this question. And the author Mm -hmm. is hoping to move houses. How much do those recent low sales numbers matter in the acquisition process? Do publishers understand that an author's like quote unquote failures are not entirely on the author's shoulders that a lot goes into that? the marketplace, you know, whatever publisher support there is or isn't. I've heard, this is now me personally interjecting. I have heard um, some authors refer to this as bad sales jail. You have a few that underperform and then you can't, it's harder to get a decent deal. And then those not as great deals often mean less publisher support or budget to promote the book, which means more bad sales. (laughs) And it's like this cycle you feel like you can't get out of. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So what do you say to all that? 
it, it's definitely real. I mean, people do look at sales figures when trying to figure out what to offer on a next book because they are making the projection that you will sell about the same number of copies of your next book as the one previous. None of this makes any sense because <laughs> no career has a trajectory where that is true. Maybe it's sort of true for like the biggest name bestsellers, you know, like a, a James Patterson book, you can kind of count on how many copies. Yeah, or like sell. Stephen King. Yeah. Right. Uh, even Stephen King, his sales are not that consistent. I mean, like they all do really well, but like some sell better than others. So it, it's sort of a silly way of looking at things, but publishers like to pretend that there's any sort of rhyme or reason to what they're doing and how they're offering on on books so you know they're looking at your sales they're looking at sales of comparable books and they're trying to pretend like there is a science to what is completely magical and i understand that because it's a it's still a business so they need to do something to pretend like you know there there's some sort of rationale behind these things but you know i've certainly had authors who have had bad track records and sent out things um and have sold like the next book for more money than the one previous that did terribly. I've had authors who've sold well and gone out and tried to sell, sell things that I couldn't sell. You know, I, I really do think in the end, a lot of it comes down to how much an editor wants a book. Yeah, um, yeah, if they really right. love it and want to acquire it, sometimes, you know, you can have a bad track. If you have multiple editors who want something, you can get a fair amount of money for, for a book. But the problem is that we have a, a chain of this, right? So Barnes & Noble says, oh, well, your last book didn't sell well, so we don't want to take copies of this one. Again, it makes no sense. Like <laughs> it's, right, it's completely right. irrational because a, a customer does not walk into a store and say, oh, yeah, <laughs> I didn't buy the last book by that author, so I'm not right. going to buy this one. Right. Like there's no, there's no actual relationship between the consumer and and these choices. It's just again like having to make some sort of decision about what to buy and what not to buy. Yeah, as people making educated guesses, but yep. I mean to to more be more direct to the person who asked the question, like yeah, publishers know it's not all your fault. It's not like all your personal oh, fault yeah. that this happened, but it doesn't mean that there's not a consequence to it. Absolutely. And I, I think that's one of the difficult things about this business is that when a book doesn't perform well, the only, really the only individual that winds up being affected is the author. Everyone else in the process has other things going on, right? Like the publisher, maybe they've made a bad bet, maybe they've made too much money, but they're a large international conglomerate. And really, it doesn't matter. Even if they've mm -hmm. taken a bath on it, like, eh. It's like mm -hmm. bad decision. They've made other good ones. It all balances out. This is why no one publishes just one book. You know, the editor, eh, maybe, maybe, you know, if they went too crazy on something, like they might have a hard time acquiring the next thing at that kind of level. But generally, it's not a huge, you know, problem for them. Publicist, you know, marketing people, like everyone moves on. Even the agent has several different clients, like they move on. Mm -hmm. But for the author, it's their one thing. I know. I know. And it's hard emotionally. This is a thing I try. I have this conversation a lot with other writers who start feeling like deep shame and self-recrimination if they don't earn out. And authors and should not like, care about earning out never, at all. Uh, no, authors should not care about earning out not, in the yeah. slightest. Like it should not even be uh, making money. I understand. That's fine. Like earning out and feeling bad about it. 
having any sort of feeling towards your publisher or or feeling doing right by them like (laughs) making money like forget about it because they're like you said everyone's on that end of things is managing to make money so you know and we've talked about before how books have different value on the marketplace there might be someone who's like a prestige author who doesn't sell well but it makes you feel good to have them or someone you really like working with and you believe in their work and you want to have them in your stable um and then there's other authors you might have that like are just like printing their money printing machines Mm -hmm. and publishers understandably want that in their stable and like Mm -hmm. people like your book not earning out is not people aren't sitting around going what a crushing disappointment this human being is. They might be like, oh, we're disappointed in how this book performed and we overpaid for it, but it's not something you should lay awake at night about. No, I mean, I think you put it really well, which is that no one is blaming the author for it, though the author may suffer consequences. Yeah, and um, the author those are unrelated things. Blame herself. Yes. Because you're gonna, um, like, really- yeah, you are going to suffer consequences. So if you want to feel bad about something, you can like, focus on that and how you're going to get around those consequences. But in terms of like the sense of being a personal failure as an artist, you should not. Absolutely. And like I, the earnout thing, I just, I want to come back to and say that it is not a thing that authors should be typically worried about. Publishers make money before the author earns out. So the, your book can be profitable even if you are not earning royalties. Mm -hmm. Um, it it is sort of one of those myths of publishing that I don't know why it has taken such great hold of people, um, but it it is not generally something that people need to worry about. Well, um, I think one of earning the out is nice. Like like making royalties yeah, is great it's because <laughs> it's money. Let's make no um, mistake. <laughs> and it's not it's not a bad thing. And I think you know especially. You know, it's nice if your book has been in print for a long period of time and you're making royalties over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. That is really great. I mean, that's a sign of a successful book. Um, but I think there there is just too much of a focus on that as like some sort of measure of something. I think one reason these things take hold is the people who are most interested and enthusiastic about talking about the businessy end of publishing are newer writers. I certainly fell into that category where you get your first couple book deals and you are now the expert because you are, you have come into all this new knowledge, you think, (laughs) and you want to share it and you feel you have some insights. Plus you're probably also younger. And as we discussed earlier, you think, you know, everything. And then later you realize, you know, nothing. (laughs) Anyway, I think that is how a lot of misinformation takes hold because people are, youthful either in their career or in their actual age and they're enthusiastic and they have new knowledge and they want to feel important again i did this so it's not a judgment (laughs) but that's how that's that's one way that the sort of mythologies get spread because because you just you go out there as a young author and you say well now that i'm now that i have my contract i can tell you like this is how it works and in reality that's like how it worked for you that one time <laughs> oh so many t- so many times i see twitter threads from authors and like there's nothing for me to dispute because it is clearly true for them mm-hmm. but they they post long threads about about how something works and that is exactly my reaction which is like oh i understand that that's how it works for you this is not advice yeah 
Like yeah. advice is something that can be applied broadly. What you were talking about is your specific situation and what has happened to you. It doesn't make it untrue. It no. just doesn't mean that it's true for everyone or even true for like a majority of people. Um, and I think the problem is that people assume that their experience is sort of universal or can be broadly applied when in fact it cannot. And and their experience, which they might find out later, was just like that one time. Uh, <laughs> like yeah. like that, like in 2009, this is precisely what happened to me and then like draw a whole like worldview from it. Okay, very last, I want to play for you the clip of what your sort of closing thoughts on the podcast were in 2015, and let's see where we are. Are you ready? I'm not, but go ahead. Let's go to 2015. And there's more and more focus on books that have gotten big advances and that have the movie deals and, you know, foreign rights have sold in this many territories. And I think in some ways that's great and exciting. It's nice to see authors' advances going up. It's good to be to, to see authors who are compensated for their work. Uh, I always tell authors never to turn down money because you don't know when it's coming again. So take what you can get when you can get it. But I, I do worry about the, the health of that and how long it goes on and then what it does to the marketplace. Because what I see happening is a sort of a reflection of what's going on in our society generally, which is the people who are successful seem to get more and more successful and more and more of the money is concentrated in the top and there's less and less for everybody else in the chain. And that's hard to see. You know, I, I would like to see a little bit more, more of that wealth spread out a little bit. So um, you're a socialist. I, I am, I am a, <laughs> I am a publishing socialist. Um, because I think there's a lot of really great stuff that, winds up being overlooked because so much emphasis is put on the things that are at the top. And, you know, it's, it, the retailers are really an issue. And when I say retailers, I mean retailer, because there's still really only one, you know, we have one retailer that dominates our business and pretty much tells us how it has to be run. And is that Barnes and Noble or Amazon? It is. It's Barnes and Noble. Amazon's a very different kind of company. Amazon, you know, as someone says, said to me recently, it's, it's basically just a fulfillment center. Um, they fulfill demand. Whatever demand is there, they fulfill it. They don't take copies of books. They don't help set print runs. Um, you know, Barnes & Noble pretty much determines how many copies of each book are going to be printed because of how many copies that they're ordering. And that's a, that's a really powerful place for them to be. And it you know, it determines the fates of many books, despite the efforts that publishers make through the indies, which still, you know, account for a very small percentage of sales overall. And then also through, you know, uh, the other other markets like the school and library market. So it's just, it, it's very, very challenging. And it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few years and how how things change and, and how we, how we as people in publishing adjust to, the realities of the marketplace. Let us return to 2020. Okay. Did you hear all that? I did. First of all, <laughs> to clarify, like, you're not just a publishing socialist now. You're an actual socialist. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've been an actual socialist for a long time. I was a little shyer about it then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. So yeah, yeah what, do you, uh, what do you think I about mean, like, like what you were saying about Barnes and Noble and Amazon? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Barnes and Noble's influence has waned since then, um, in part because they are taking less and less copies. So their their influence is smaller than it was. I mean, them being bought and the changes that they're making, like they're they're still obviously a, a major player, and they still affect. Um, you know, like, honestly, what gets acquired and what covers look like, et cetera, but not quite as much as they did at the time. It's definitely shifted. Um, But it's not like Amazon has a larger influence in some sense, because again, I I think that fulfillment center thing is a a little bit glib, but it's kind of true. You know, they don't have the same editorial sense that that Barnes and Noble did. I mean, Barnes and Noble has now laid off a bunch of their buyers and, and right. I, like, you know. As I understand it, there were, in the olden times, ye olden times when I started 2015. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ye olden times when we last talked. Yeah, there was like a set of people, human people, not algorithms, human people looking at your catalog going, no, we don't like this cover or mm-hmm. you should acquire more books like X or whatever. And Amazon mm-hmm. doesn't have an equivalent people. Yeah, it's not quite the same. Uh, I mean, there are people, it's just different. And and I think a lot of, most of what I was saying is actually the same. And then like, there's that little bit about Barnes and Noble being different. They don't, they don't control things quite as much as they used to, but they are still very influential. Um, I do think that, you know, What's interesting is the market, like the the children's market, is so different than it was in 2015. You know, the the shift back to picture books and middle grade has been very large. YA is not selling in the numbers that it was in mm-hmm. 2015 at all. I mean, it's really uh, the top sellers are a fraction of what they used to be, um, and it's it's interesting to see that like Stephanie Meyer can come back and have the you know biggest selling YA book of the year you know, mm. 10 years later, like she's still a huge name. Like we should have moved on to more other names, but there just hasn't been that huge breakout hit. Um, you know, we don't have things, the level of um, hunger games going on in, in the young adult market and sales are much more diffuse and spread out over lots and lots and lots of titles. And, you know, publishers are still placing big bets on things and trying to make things work, but nothing's really broken out and that same sort of way, um, you know, we haven't had a, a fault in our stars since the fault in our stars, mm-hmm. and that was a long time ago. I think um, I, I, you do sound, I, you do I sound think, less self-assured. <laughs> well, no, I actually, it's interesting listening back on that. Like, I just, I think it actually stands pretty well on its own. I, mm-hmm. I don't have. I assumed that you were going to play me something back that I was going to feel like, wow, everything is totally different. And no, no I pretty much feel the same. It was interesting listening back. It was like, this holds up. <laughs> this, this all holds yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, that makes me a little bit happy. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes <laughs> I feel a little bit, you know, can feel a little bit down about things. But, uh, you know, uh, if I am, I, I should have been feeling down about them five years ago. So. <laughs> Well, I think the big change really, I guess, going back to that first question, what are the biggest changes you've seen since you started in 05, 06, 07? Yeah, that what you just said is because YA was exploded, exploding, not imploding, exploding. Um, It was huge. There was, we were on the cusp of, what was Twilight was 2006, I want to say. And what just, year was was Story of Girl two thousand seven? Then yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, looking for Alaska, you know, John Green's first couple of books, like 
all of that was happening right around then. And it was huge becoming this huge category and then, um, and selling a ton and like getting publishers through the great recession in some cases. And that's not happening right now. But that just seems like normal cycles of it is publishing. I think we were saying five years ago, like there's too many books. Like there's, yep. there's too, too many. And books. this is what always happens. Yeah, you know, look, you have boom and bust cycles, and and when things are up, 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 you know, everyone's buying, everyone's buying so much stuff, flooding the market, and then what you do is you flood the market, and then mm-hmm. the sales become diffuse, and you don't have hits that are as big, and it's hard to get people to focus. And then I think that's just exacerbated by the world generally. And I think, you know, there's a lot of other entertainment for teens that, um, you know, and not just teens, but also people who read teen books. You know, I think yeah, we people are spending even... more time on their phones. <laughs> In five years, we'll have another episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you find know, out what's happening. We'll, Sarah will just be writing TikToks or something, you know, like it's, it's... I've already started people, anyone out there on TikTok. I am on TikTok now. I have started making my first TikTok content. I'm going to roll with the changes, baby. There you go. Uh, You know, (laughs) adapt. Adapt to survive. Um, And also follow your own creative desires, Sarah. So if you're in TikTok, go for it. That is, again, like the, the thing we were saying earlier about do you like doing this thing? Like, I find TikTok enormously fun. Like, just I looked at it for about a month before I made any of my own and I like the spirit and energy of it. And I wanted to get in on that, but I'm not doing it to sell books. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I obviously admire you for lots of different reasons. And um, I, I think one of them is your creative curiosity and your interest in so many different forms of media and how you explore them. I mean, you know, you were a live journal person back in the day, right? That's mm-hmm. that's where like your main platform was. And like, you know, you've been on Twitter and now you're doing TikTok and you, you've written all different kinds of books. I, um, I started a podcast in 2012. Yeah, 2012 before the podcasting people. boom even. <laughs> you know, I, and I love that you explore all of those things. And I think that makes you probably a much more fulfilled person um, because of it. And well, it keeps me engaged. I, and that's what it's all about. Yep. Makes me interested in life and learning and growing. And it makes you interesting. Well, that's debatable. I'm sure some people. <laughs> <laughs> it's debatable. Uh, Michael Barrett, thank you so much for agreeing to return to this creative life. And it's been great to talk as always. Thanks for sharing your insights and experience and are you what speaking of social media if people wanted to follow you are you active on any platforms these days no hey <laughs> never mind then people can go I mean, to you distal.com can, you, you <laughs> distal. and read his static bio yeah and you can <laughs> find me on all the social medias at, at michael barrett uh, my full name. I, I am I'm on a hiatus of sorts. Yeah, you're there, but you're not there. Correct. <laughs> Stay tuned, everyone, to all the big exciting changes happening in the podcast this year. If you skipped over my intro at the beginning of this podcast because you were eager to get to the conversation with Michael, you might want to go back and listen because things are happening. I am Sarah Zar. You can find me at sarazar.com and at Sarah Zar Books on most platforms now, including TikTok. 
Thank you for listening, liking, sharing, rating, especially when they're five-star ratings. It helps. Um, Happy New Year. It's 2021. I'm glad you're here. <laughs>